Thank you for joining us here at Life Church. It's an honor to share God's word with you today. Our prayer is that you will connect with Jesus Christ as you hear his word online. We'd love to have you visit one of our upcoming gatherings. For more information, visit us online at www.liferva.org or contact our church offices and we'll be happy to help you in any way that we can. Let's go now to one of our recent services where you can experience a life-giving message from God's Word. But before we do, I'd like us to pray and just ask the Lord to kind of come into this moment with us right now and that His presence who's already here would begin to work on our hearts individually. Uh, this is the moment, we've been worshiping corporately, but now's the moment where we take the Word of God and apply it individually. And so I want God's presence to come and do that with us right now. And so let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this moment, God. I thank you, Lord, that in this moment right now, there are individuals all over this room, and right now we're preparing to hear from you, and we're preparing to hear from your Word. And Lord, we want your Word to challenge us. We want to be changed by it. We want to leave here different. We want people to have noticed that we've been in the presence of Jesus. And so today, God, I ask your Word to do its work in our lives, that we, when we would leave here today, God, we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are free uh, in you and that your presence has done a work in our lives. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we began this year, I, I, we set out uh, to plan our calendars, and I knew this three-week series opportunity was coming, and I began to try to think through what the Lord would have me uh, share with you during this time. And then I had shared a message in February uh, during a week when we got snowed out. Uh, it was called Sanitized Hearts. Uh, some of you may remember that. I have no doubt that it was so life-changing for you all that it immediately became the number one item on your playlist, and you downloaded the podcast and have played it on repeat ever since, uh, right? That's what y'all do, right? Uh, nevertheless, during my study time uh, for this message, uh, that message, I really had felt led to go in that direction for this particular series that I was doing, and if you happen to remember, we talked a lot about how our world really over the last year and a half had become consumed by hand sanitizer and cleaning surfaces and washing of hands and making sure things were clean. Now, I just want it to be known right up front, I believe in hand washing. I think that's important. I want the counters to be clean. Uh, please wipe down my table before I sit down to lunch today. I do not want to sit on your sticky table surface. I want it to be clean. And I will be stopping by a sink directly after service today to wash off the fellowship from all of my wonderful friends here at church today. It's not that I don't love you, but I don't know where your hands have been, and so I just want to make sure I, you know, I'm clean. And so what we found in regards to COVID is that for all of the cleaning and the washing of surfaces and the fear of public bathrooms and all that we've experienced over the last year and a half, Ironically, the science seems to bear out that this disease does not live on surfaces in spite of all our cleaning. Uh, it may have been just overkill because COVID is not transmitted that way. So we spend a lot of time and effort perfecting and cleaning up the outside to little or no avail because ultimately COVID doesn't live on the outside of surfaces. It grows and expands on the inside. And those of you who have experienced COVID personally, you know just how damaging it can be. And so it's kind of funny. I'm not surprised that when the pandemic hit, we immediately became consumed with external solutions. Wipe everything down, sanitize the door handles, hire companies to come in and spray stuff. We live in a world that is consumed with how things are perceived externally. 
As a society, we spend unknown amounts of money trying to impress people with our clothes, our houses, our yards, our cars, our lifestyle, if you will, none of which reveal the true us. You may wear all the right clothes, live in the best neighborhood, keep every blade of grass in your perfect yard perfectly trimmed, always plush and green, have every tree and shrub perfectly manicured, complete with all the toys, bells, and whistles available to you, but none of it guarantees that your home will even be happy, that the people inside the four walls of that house even care about each other. None of our outward entrapments of life can provide you with relational fulfillment, spiritual growth, emotional or physical health. You can pretty it up on the outside, but none of it promises health on the inside. You can have it all together so that people will tout your name and talk about how great you are, even talk about how close to God you appear to be. But all they are seeing is an outward performance that you are showing because what you show is rarely indicative of what is going on beneath the surface. And that's why I believe this series is really so important. I believe God is calling us to perform a deep clean. You know, every spring, every fall, we kind of do this at the church. You hear us talk about our, uh, our uh, love my church work days that we have. Uh, maybe you do it at home too. You can pull everything out. You clean behind the furniture. You really scrub hard. You really go deep in on your cleaning because you don't deal with everything every time you clean, do you? If you do, we want to applaud you right now. If every time you clean, you pull the couch out from the wall and vacuum behind it, you are amazing. And I'm so proud of you. Um, but the rest of us, there are many things that you just don't deal with because you know they're going to require some extra effort, some extra work. They're harder to clean. It requires more of us to go deep. And it takes some extra effort to really clean underneath the bed, doesn't it? It requires some extra work to get the headboard pulled away from the wall and get behind there. It takes some time to clean out the bottom of your closet or under the bathroom sink or that corner in the laundry room that nobody wants to deal with, but you prop a broom in front of it and hope it hides it. A lot of people just prefer to scrape the surface, don't they? It doesn't require much. I only have to deal with what people will notice, what people will see. Stuff all the excess stuff in a closet somewhere. I will deal with it another time. Let's just pretty up what people can see. And if I'm being honest, a lot of people prefer that kind of church too. Surface church shallow church. Nothing too deep, preacher. Don't make me think. Don't make me consider too much. Let me just feel good. Let me dance around the fire a little bit. I don't want to be consumed by the flames. Just let me be on the outskirts. Don't ask me to consider those dark corners and recesses of my heart that hide all the stuff that I don't want anybody to see. Let me just clean up the outside. Let me make it look good. I will deal with the deep stuff when I've got more time or when it's less invasive or when it's more convenient. Now, if that's you, I hope it's not. But if it is, the next three weeks, I still want you to come, but it may get a little uncomfortable. But if you're willing to endure the discomfort with me for about 40, 45 minutes, I promise you when you leave here, you've got the potential to be free in Jesus and to celebrate that freedom that he provides. So I want to share with you our theme scripture for this series. It's found in some of the toughest statements I believe that Jesus makes during his time on earth. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 23, We'll start at verse 23, and no, that's not a tribute to Michael Jordan. It just is Matthew 23, 23. 
Jesus is in the midst of a rant against those who would have been the religious leaders of the day. He was God in the flesh. He was descendant of King David. He had spiritual and biological claims to the throne of Israel. And yet those in religious power were constantly offended by him. And they were really looking for ways to discredit him and ultimately get rid of him. But it didn't stop Jesus from challenging them. This is what he says in Matthew 23, 23. He says, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden. But you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First, wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Everybody say deep clean. If you're watching online, why don't you put that in the comment section? Deep clean. As Jesus was talking to this group of religious leaders, he was talking to people who society believed they had it all together. They knew how to fulfill all the religious obligations. They had perfected the religious talk. They walked the religious walk. They had the obligations of faith down. They paid their tithes. They offered their obligatory sacrifices. They even went into the temple at the appropriate times for all the appropriate services. But Jesus, who was God in the flesh, was not impressed by how well they performed by how well they cleaned up the outside, by how well they seemed to fulfill their rituals. He was much more concerned with whether the religious ritual, the religious entrapment, the religious ceremony, the religious tradition, he was much more concerned with whether all the things we do for God were affecting the parts that he was most interested in. I'm going to say that again. Jesus was more concerned with whether the things we do for God have an effect on the parts of us that he is most interested in. He's not interested in the brand of shirt or pants you wear. He's much more interested in the heart that is buried beneath them. And if we're not doing the right things for that, that is what concerns him. So I notice that you've cleaned, Jesus says, the outside of the cup, the plate, the saucer. They look so nice. They sparkle from the work you've done but I'm not drinking out of that. But Lord, I've sanitized it. I made it perfect. I made it right. Look how clean it is. But Jesus says, no, no, you are right. It does look good, but I see below the surface. I look deeper and inside I still see so much stuff that needs to be clean, that needs some attention, that needs to be exposed to me and surrendered to me so that internally you match what's being shown on the external. So that inside you sparkle and shine just as much as you do on the outside. So I think these next three weeks, that's what God is challenging us to consider. Have I dealt with the deep issues? 
Have I really exposed all areas of my heart to the working of the Holy Spirit? Or do I have some corners that I'm hiding and that I'm covering up or shoving into a closet? Have I drawn close to the light of God's word or am I fearful to draw close to God because I don't want to reveal those things that I think are hidden in the dark? And my crying out for the fire to fall in my life, like we've done all summer with our the Fire Still Falls series, have I truly exposed myself to the kinds of things that the presence of God needs to consume in my life and to burn out of my life? Have I shouted and danced and sang and did my best to seem as if I had it all just right? But inside are there things that are eating at me like a cancer consuming me that when I expose to others is not the way, truly a reflection of the turmoil and the pain and the hurt and the damage that is revealed when I look a little deeper, when you go for a deep clean. So what I'm going to begin with today is an area that particularly I have struggled with over the most of my life. I still struggle with it. One thing you should have learned by now from me if you've been here for any length of time. If I, if I have the opportunity to stand before you and share, I'm probably not going to hold back. I'm probably going to be real and I'm probably going to be honest and I'm probably going to talk about my own shortcomings. And today I want to share with you a heart issue that eats at me and that I struggle with and that I'm in the process of finding ways to truly surrender it to God. Some days I think I have it, but my enemy loves to bring it back to the surface and I battle with it some more. Anybody ever felt that way? Man, you, you think you got it handled, you think you got it licked, and all of a sudden it rears its ugly head and you, you see that maybe you haven't licked it as well as you thought. You think you cleaned that corner out, but somehow some more junk got in the corner, right? So in the time that I have left today, I want to dig into this. I'm wondering how many of you have ever done something that you're really ashamed of? Now if you'd turn to your neighbor on the left or the right and share that with them. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, you should have seen the look on some of your face. I think Eddie Colley over here was about to have a heart attack. Oh, no. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't do that. I'm just joking. Um, I'm a part of a group that meets on Wednesday mornings on Zoom. I, I meet with other pastors and ministers to offer advice and support. It goes both ways. And in our group, we're discovering that really the strongest unhealthy feelings of our lives stem from shame. And so today I want to share with you about a subject that I believe is very important for us to experience some healing from God if we will be honest enough to deal with it. If you don't know, I'm a pretty focused person. When I make up my mind to accomplish a task, I'm extremely driven and focused to do it. When I decided I was going to pursue my education, I went at it full tilt. I worked full time, went to school full time, studied half the night every night. Um, when I have a task here at church that needs to be accomplished, I don't really feel settled until it's complete. Uh, there are sometimes you may see me hustling around here on Sundays or during the week, and I promise I'm not rude or inconsiderate. If you stop me, I will talk to you and I will spend time with you, but I may not be the first one to stop at every person along the way because I'm focused on getting something done and I can't feel settled in my spirit or even have the ability to relax until those things are accomplished. I've even had people offer to help me from time to time, but even that can be problematic because as I hand off the task, I then am worried until that person finishes their part of the task. And 
Uh, poor Debbie, she said amen on this in the first service really loud, and so I you know, felt like I must have been telling the truth because uh, I don't know how many times I've, I've bugged her when I've handed off things to her because she hasn't done it at the pace that I wanted it done at. And once you hand off a task, you just got to trust that they're going to do it at the pace they're going to do it at. And that doesn't always work for my way, I think. And so I can't move forward and check it off my list until I know it's complete. And so it, was, it, it always creates a little bit of tension for me. But why am I so focused or driven at times? Well, in my purest moments, I would say I... Uh, the holy answer that I would want to give to everyone is that I'm driven because I really want to do my best for the kingdom of God. And I see all the things that I do as being instrumental in helping people connect to Jesus. And I, that's a great answer. And that's the one I would hope I would be able to give. But unfortunately, many times I'm still a sinful person and my motives aren't always pure. And I become extremely driven and focused as a compensation for a real dysfunction in my life. A deep-rooted feeling of inadequacy as I try to make up for things that I did wrong, things that I'm ashamed of. I try to cover that up by doing more and accomplishing more and becoming more. But instead, many times, I just feel that soul-crushing shame and that guilt that just drives at me. And that's why the title for week one of this series, I've titled it Freed from Shame. Freed from Shame. I want to talk to you about being free from shame. If you Go all the way back to the beginning. Book of Genesis, God's story in the Garden of Eden begins. In the book of Genesis, you see a powerful example of life before shame and the tragedy of life after shame. You've got Adam and Eve who are in the garden, and there's this little verse. It's tucked in at the very end of chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. It's so tucked in that you may have overlooked it and not even noticed it, but this is what it says. Now, the man and his wife were both naked they felt no shame. This is incredible to me. Not the naked part, though that's pretty impressive too, but more specifically the no shame part, right? That they would literally be completely vulnerable, completely out there, no sense of embarrassment, nothing to hide, nothing weighing them down. They were naked, enjoying the blessings of the beauty of God's creation, and they felt no shame. And then if you know the story, the serpent came and tempted them to disobey God. Sin enters into the world. And let me be very clear. They both sinned. I know that saying they sinned with emphasis in this culture today is, not, is frowned upon and many times looked at as being politically incorrect. You shouldn't tell people that they sinned, right? That's the politically correct answer. And it may be politically incorrect to say it, but it's biblically very correct. Because we are all serving a very holy and righteous and perfect God. And any time we do, do not live up to his standards, we fall short. And the Bible calls that sin. Is that all right? Everybody still love me? We, we believe in that, right? And when they sinned, immediately they felt a deep-seated sense of shame. So much so that they cover themselves up. They go into hiding because they don't just have a feeling that they did something wrong, but rather they took on this new identity that they were bad. And that's why guilt is really different from shame. Guilt is generally action-based. Shame is identity-based. And I'll show you what the difference is. Guilt believes I did something bad. It's action-based. But shame says I am bad. It's identity-based. Guilt, particularly when we feel guilty for sin, it can be good, right? 
If I feel bad about what I've done and it drives me to Christ for forgiveness, that's a good thing. If I did something wrong and I feel guilt of it, and in that guilt it says, oh, I've got to get in the presence of God, I've got to repent, I've got to turn, that's a good thing. But shame isn't that. Guilt says I did something bad, I did something wrong, but shame internalizes it. Shame believes I am bad, I am wrong, I am dirty. We feel guilty for what we did, but we feel ashamed of who we are. In fact, there's a lady that many would call a shame expert who's written on it and studied. Her name is Brene Brown, and she has a powerful quote that says this, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. How could ever God love me, right? You ever thought that? How could God ever love me? It's something we've experienced, done, or failed to do that makes us unworthy of connection. I have no idea what it might be for you, that thing that causes you to feel shame. It might be your secret. It might be your financial debt, but you don't want anybody to know about it. It might be your sexual past. It might be your sexual problems in the present. It might be that addiction that you don't want anybody to know about or that thing that you did years ago and you hope nobody ever finds out about. But because of what you did, your spiritual enemy tries to connect that action to who you are and how you see yourself, and you start to believe, I am defective, I am damaged, I'm broken, I'm flawed. Because of what I did, I'm dirty, I'm impure, I'm disgusting. And the devil continues to whisper to you for year after year after year because of what you did. You're unlovable, you're weak, you're pitiful, you're insignificant, you're unworthy, you're unwanted. And without knowing it, if we're not careful, we can take something that we did or even something that someone did to us and wrongly connect it to our identity and start living with this shame-based thinking. How does shame-based thinking influence our lives? I'll show you. There's really three different ways I think that shame-based thinking influences our lives, and you may see yourself in this. The first symptom of shame-based thinking is Whenever we live with this shame-based thinking, we're vulnerable to perfectionism. How many of you would say that might be you? I'm vulnerable to, perf- to being perfect. I gotta be perfect. It's gotta be right. I gotta have it right. It's gotta be that way. And I don't take anything less for it, right? Right? You're vulnerable to perfectionism. Don't elbow the person next to you. Just take credit for yourself. What we often will do is we'll try to silence our shame with a perfect performance. Look at how good I did. We find it really difficult to admit any type of failure. I want to cover my shame with a perfect performance. The second symptom of shame is this. We're often critical of ourselves, which drives us to become critical of others. It's really tragic, but oftentimes the most critical people around are those dealing with the most shame. Because shamed people tend to shame other people. And what ends up happening is we hate in others the very sin that we can't stand in ourselves. And we are critical of others so because we are so critical of ourselves, we become critical of others. Finally, the third symptom of shame-based thinking is this. We use self-defeating thoughts to shield ourselves from disappointment. We tend to think the worst-case scenario, right? And so if we just tell ourselves this is bad and it's going to probably get worse it's really, really bad, then we lower our expectations so we aren't disappointed. 
At the same time, we sabotage our opportunities and our relationships because of shame. I wonder how many ministries never got birthed because people were too ashamed to step out of their failure and embrace the opportunity God put in front of them, and they sabotaged it at at that initial level. I wonder how many people sit frustrated because they are too ashamed to step up and say, hey, God could use me. I had a friend text me in, in between the services, and he said, hey, me and my wife are three for three, 100% on all three, of those tech, on all three of those symptoms. And I don't know about you, but that's me too. I find myself in every one of them. And we tell ourselves we, we're just going to be rejected so we don't even give ourselves a chance. And because our spiritual enemy used the tool of shame, it might cause one parent to lash out for no apparent reason, or another parent to get drunk and disengaged because they feel ashamed. Shame might be what drives your in-laws to criticize your parenting because they see their own weaknesses and, and, and their shame from their parenting style. Or you might become hypercritical of others because you're hypercritical of yourself. Shame-based thinking, it's not from God, but we need to recognize it in ourselves so that with the help of the Lord, we can deal with it and be freed from it. For years and years and years, my shame was driven by sin. Time for honesty, okay? The first time I can really identify and remember being consumed by shame was when I was in the sixth grade. My friend and I opened up a toolbox in his basement for looking for tools. And I've shared this before, but we all, we opened up Pandora's box and there was no tools inside, but there was stacks of magazines filled with all sorts of pornographic images that to this day, if I close my eyes, I can bring them back into my mind. And while I looked like an innocent kid on the outside, inside I felt dirty, filthy, and ashamed. That dirty feeling, those shameful images continued to haunt me. And I remember how I'd pray and cry and beg God to cleanse my mind and cleanse my heart. And I'd be good for a while, and then the enemy would trip me up with temptation. And then those feelings of shame would come flooding back into my life. And over and over and over, carrying feelings of filth and shame because something happened when I was 11 years old that I couldn't get beyond. I remember also as a teenager, I went through a period of time where I thought it was cool to cuss, to use bad words in conversation, and all my friends were exploring their linguistic abilities, so why shouldn't I? And I remember I put up and took down the flags at our school every day, and I usually had another student who helped me, and we were outside, and it was a great time for me to practice my linguistic acumen. So we were talking, and I was adding lots of colorful words, special adjectives to the conversation that just made myself look so cool. And I'll never forget my friend Benjamin Watson. He looked at me, and he said, I thought you went to church. You think Jesus likes you using those words? Oh, the guilt I felt. And every time I saw him, I felt such shame. And the devil would ride me over and over and over again call yourself a Christian and look how you let God down. Then I remember as an adult, business for myself, I began to have some financial difficulties and I made bad decisions and some of them were illegal decisions and I found myself in a cycle of loss, loss of our, loss of our, our business, loss of income, loss of career, loss of our home, loss of even our church family for a period of time, loss after loss after loss. And Finally, a complete loss of really my reputation when I had to tell my mom and dad and my family that I was being accused of embezzlement and I was going to have to talk to the cops. And even now, just saying those words out loud fill me with so much regret and shame. It didn't matter that I knew the whole story, that I knew what my intentions were, that I knew that I'd never meant to harm anybody or cause any issues, that I was simply trying to survive and keep people employed. The 
overwhelming level of shame I felt was so great. The hardest part of all, my mom passed away shortly after all of that, and there were times when I was at my lowest point that I wondered if all the things that had happened to me, seeing me face all those losses and knowing the mistakes that I had made and would have to pay for, if they may have caused her to pass away just a little quicker. I know that's not true. I know that my mom died of cancer, but after her loss, I remember feeling such shame and guilt, wondering if any of my mistakes could have contributed to her rapid decline. And I know you may think that's foolish, and in many ways it is, but the devil doesn't care that what you're thinking rationally is whether it's foolish or not. He hits you when you're consumed by shame and just adds a little more to keep the focus on you and your troubles and your mistakes and your issues and your problems and the stuff that you did. So then I'm consumed by these labels. I'm a guy who looked at things he shouldn't have looked at, who said words he shouldn't have said, destroyed his Christian witness before he had a chance to even establish it. And as an adult, I'm a disappointment. I'm a financial failure. I'm accused of embezzlement. And that's just a sampling. I have tons more stuff, dirt in the corners that has lived my life, tons more stuff for which I experienced shame. Shame, shame, shame. Everybody knows your name. Even the nursery rhyme titles shame to your identity. Shame, shame, shame. Everybody knows your name. Therefore, I am bad. God could never use me. How could God even love me? I am so flawed. Now, with the help of the Lord, I'm thankful to tell you today that I'm no longer ashamed of my past because my past is covered by the grace of Jesus. My sins are forgiven. He has made me brand new. And that's why I'm not afraid to share with you in this moment my mistakes and my issues and my struggles. Because if God can pull me out of my mistakes, I know he can pull you out of yours too. It doesn't matter how bad they are. It doesn't matter how great the gulf is between you and God. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you too. The good news is I'm not ashamed of my past. But the bad news is that I have to recognize that I still battle sometimes with shame-based thinking that's in my identity. I remember when I came to work here at Life Church, I was so ashamed of the mistakes I'd made. I was so thankful to have Pastor Thompson be willing to give me a second chance and for God to give me an opportunity. And so I took on any project and I wanted to excel and to be perfect and to do everything right. And I never felt worthy of any blessing. And no matter how much I could do, it was never enough because of the shame I felt over how far I had fallen and how far God had to bring me back from. I was never enough. I never felt like I could do enough. And one day, Pastor Thompson pulled me aside and he said, Rodney, you got to put that stuff in the past and leave it there. Jesus doesn't remember it. You shouldn't either. And no matter how hard I tried and how much I appreciated that, sometimes it still creeps back into my mind. And so daily I battled with this desire to prove my worth and to be perfect. No matter how much I did, I was constantly reminded that I'm not enough and I never will be enough. And there's some truth to that, isn't it? I'll never be enough. And here's what's interesting. Anytime you think something bad about yourself, there's actually some truth in it, right? I hate to tell you that. Like, you might think, maybe you're thinking today, you know, I am bad. And I'm here telling you, you know, you probably are. (laughs) Welcome to week one where I'm here to make you feel better about yourself. Woo-hoo! The Bible says we all sin. We all come up short. You've sinned. I've sinned. We've all sinned. You joined the club. Y'all thought it was the 50 and older club. It's really the center club. We're all in it. 
We are not designed to be perfect. We are designed to be forgiven. And so we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We all need a Savior. We all need a Redeemer to come and pay for our sin that we can't afford to pay for on our own. The Bible says we all are there. We're not designed to do it on our own. We're never good enough. The problem is as long as we're focused on us, we will always be vulnerable to shame. You will always be vulnerable to shame as long as you remain focused on you because we on our own are not enough. There's a powerful story in the Old Testament about God's people who tragically were in slavery for 430 years. If you can imagine that, 430 years in slavery in Egypt, and you have a generation after generation after generation after generation of people that are born a slave. All they know is, I'm a slave. I feel worthless. I feel invaluable. My life is nothing. 430 years, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, they believe that lie. You are not valuable whatsoever. And then God raises up Moses, played by Charlton Heston. Don't tell me as a kid you didn't believe that's what Moses looked like because you know it did. You saw it every Easter, on, on, usually on, if you lived in Richmond, on Channel 8, and they would play the Ten Commandments, and Charlton Heston would step out into the crowd, and he would say, let my people go. And you thought that's how Moses must have sounded. And God miraculously, through the voice of Charlton Heston, delivered his people from slavery. The tragedy is, though they were outwardly free, inwardly they still were slaves. They were out of slavery, but slavery wasn't out of them. And some of you this morning, you're followers of Christ. You've been forgiven and you've been freed, but just because your sin is forgiven, some of you are still slaves to the shame of something that God has forgiven you of and is no longer true about you, but you continue to be in shame. And that's why the only way to heal from shame is to move the focus from what I'm not to who he is. It's to move the focus from what I'm not to who Christ is. We have to take the focus off of us and put it on Jesus. Because some of you today, and I don't know who you are, but someone, though you've been forgiven by Christ, though your, though your sins, he does not hold them against you any longer, he remembers them no more, you're still living with, consumed by, driven by, shame-based thinking. You're still believing that you're something that God says you're not. You are calling yourself by the labels, and God doesn't even recognize the person that you're calling yourself. Because when he declared you were free, he no longer sees the very thing that you feel shame for. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. The only person who can keep you from experiencing that freedom is you. The devil can't even keep you from experiencing that freedom. You are the only one who can. So we got to take the focus off of you, what you did, what you hurt, who you hurt, how damaged you were, or how damaged you are. you got to take it all off of that and place the focus on the Jesus who set you free. Galatians 5 and 1 says, so Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. In that particular passage, Paul is talking specifically about those that were trying to pull them back into the Jewish law, but take the principle that's there. God has set us free. Don't fall back into the trap of slavery, to the shame that he has set you free from. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of the book of Hebrews gives us an amazing little glimpse as to how Jesus sets us free from the slavery of sin. 
Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Get our eyes off me. Get our eyes off what I did. Get my eyes off who I am and who I've hurt and who I caused trouble to. Get my eyes off all of that. Get them on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he scorned its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, he endured the cross because of what was coming. For the joy of what was set before him, he saw you running the race. He saw you performing what he wanted you to do. He saw you accomplishing the kingdom of God in your life and allowing those things to go forward in you and advance in the race that he set out for you. So he set that, that's in his mind. He set that out before him. And for the joy of that, he was willing to endure the cross in spite of the fact that he was scorning or despising the shame. Those three little words, I love it, scorning its shame despising it, loathing it, hating it. It's so powerful to me. Jesus endured the cross to see you run the race, to see you have the opportunity to live out your days for him. He did it, endured it, even though he hated and despised and scorned the shame. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the God of the universe, the perfect, sinless man, to take upon himself the sins of the entire world. And by entire world, I don't mean all of those that were alive at the moment that he was alive. I mean from the beginning of time to the end of time. Every human being that ever walked on the face of the earth, every person who ever committed a sin, every person who ever did anything wrong, every person who ever felt guilt, he took all of the shame and he applied it to himself in one moment so that you would not have to. And in this very same way, I believe God scorns the shame that crushes your soul and kills your joy. He knows what he endured so that you wouldn't have to. And so when it does, he scorns it. He hates it. He despises it. He despises the shame you feel from your lies or your hidden eating habits or your secret sexual sin. He, he loathes the shame you feel from financial failure, from your deepest secrets, deepest secrets or your darkest hurts. He scorns the shame of how you feel when you look at the wrong thing, think the wrong thought, say the wrong thing. He hates the shame that you endure because of what you said, what you did, what you didn't do. He despises the shame of your self-doubt and your self-hatred. He scorns the shame of what you felt like back then and how you don't like yourself now. And for me, he scorns the shame I feel when I can't fix every problem or when I always believe I'll never be enough. He hates the shame I feel when I consider the losses of 2009 and 10 and the financial failures that have created inadequacy in my life. He despises the shame I felt in being a terrible witness in the sixth grade by using words that to this day make me so mad when I hear them. The Son of God, God in the flesh, stripped down naked on an instrument of torture called the cross. As the creation, those he came to love mocked him, cursed him, and spit on him. He looked at the shame and he despised it. And he still despises it to this day. Because having endured it, he doesn't want anything to separate you from him again. He even knows what it feels like when you feel that shame because he's felt it before. 
And he knows what it feels like to feel like he's abandoned and set aside because he even cried out to God, why have you forsaken me? And because of his death and subsequent resurrection, you and I can be made free, free from shame, free from sin, free from those things that would entangle us, free from the guilt that, we eat, that eats us alive. If the musicians and praise team would come, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people back to him. I love that. He says, hey, you're a new creature in Christ. And it happened because God brought us back to him through Christ, and then you get the opportunity to do the same for others. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ ambassadors. Hey, I know you think you're a bad person and you got all these things wrong and you did all these things, but when Jesus looks at you, he sees his ambassador on the earth. He sees somebody that's supposed to take his message and remind people that their sin no longer counts against them because he nailed it to the tree. We can be forgiven and we can be healed of shame. But the only way to heal from shame is to move the focus from who you are to who he is. Are you ready? Are you willing to do that? What I want to do as we close today is I want you to move the focus from who you are and what you did to who Jesus is and what he did. And here's how it's gonna play out in your life. He's gonna throw a screen up there that's gonna have some blanks on it. It says, I am blank, I am not blank. Because of Christ, I am blank. And I want you to fill in the blanks today. What are your blanks? What are the things that you're willing to declare that I'm not because of Christ, I am? What might it look like for you? It might be this, it might be, I'm not horrible. Because of Christ, I'm forgiven. Or for you, you might declare, I'm not sick. Because of Christ, I'm healed. For you, it might be this, I'm not broken. Because of Christ, I am complete. For you, you might say, I'm not unwanted. Because of Christ, what am I? I am loved. I am accepted. I am forgiven. I am new. I am chosen. I am set apart. I am called by God because of Christ. Mine is this, I am not enough, I will never be enough. But Christ in me is more than enough because of who he is and because of what he's done. That shame doesn't have to hold me anymore. Remember the Israelites, 430 years of shame. 430 years they carried generation after generation the same of slavery. They were out of slavery, but the shame of slavery wasn't out of them. But finally in Joshua 5, 9, if you'd stand with me all over this house, this is my favorite verse. I found it this week and it just kind of blew my mind when I found this out. Joshua 5 and 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. There's only a couple places in the whole scripture that this particular term is used. One is at the tomb of Lazarus when a dead man is on the other side and Jesus says, roll away the stone. Another time when an angel is sitting outside of a, a, of a mountaintop tomb where there's a, a God in the flesh that's been buried on the inside and that angel rolled away the stone. And see, today you may be dead inside. You may be so consumed by the guilt and shame of your past, 
But Jesus comes to roll away the shame. He comes to roll away the shame. And in so doing, he says, and you, if you'll come to me, if you'll be a part of me, I will make you brand new. I will give you a new life. I will resurrect you to the newness of life in Christ Jesus. Somebody may have told you shame on you, shame on you, but I'm here today to tell you Jesus declares the shame off of you. The shame is no longer intended to be on you. Shame is off of you today. And I come to tell somebody that because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done, you are worthy of love. The cross was for you. The empty tomb was for you. Jesus looked and saw through time and he saw you today in this moment knowing that if he endured the shame of the cross for the joy that is set before him, you could be free. That knowledge gave him such joy. And today, I believe it is his intention for you to walk in the same joy of freedom that he feels because the shame is no longer on you. He took care of it at Calvary. It can be off of you in the name of Jesus. Can you say amen? I'm going to open this altar and they're going to begin to sing. But as you come, I want to encourage you today to recognize when you step out of your seat and you begin to come down this way, you're not walking in shame anymore. Shame has been rolled away. The shame is off of you. You don't have to live in shame anymore. You don't have to be like, oh, shame on me, shame on me. No, 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 no. Jesus has removed the shame. Would you come today? Father, I thank you for this moment. Let your power and presence work in this house right now to draw your people to you, oh God, regardless of what they've been said about, regardless of what people may have said about them, told on them, the names they've called them, God. I ask you to remind them today of who they are in you, that they are who you say they are, and you say they are redeemed. You say they are, 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 are forgiven. You say they are your children, and we thank you today for it. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.
declaring that over your life. I am chosen. I'm not forsaken. I am who he says I am. He is for me. He's not against me. I am who he says I am. And you're not some, what someone did to you today. You're not what others have said about you. You're not even sometimes who you've said about yourself. You are who Jesus says you are. And I declare to you today that he says, if you are in him, you are free. You are forgiven, you are changed, you are healed, you are redeemed, you are blessed, you are complete, you are chosen, you are accepted. No more shame. I believe today he's removing the shame off of somebody today and you're gonna walk free in the name of Jesus, declaring your freedom for the world to know. Today he has rolled the shame off of somebody and given you the ability to walk out of that old grave free and knowing that you are free in him in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for the moment that we've shared in your presence. Lord, there's a moment that we'll never be able to take away from us, God. I pray today it was a high watermark for someone, God, as they realize that they don't have to walk in shame. They don't have to walk around discouraged and depressed and feeling negative about the past you delivered them from. They can walk in the freedom of Christ Jesus, the freedom that you have made available to them. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. We celebrate you today, oh God, and we honor you. Let's thank him all over this house. Father, we thank you. We bless you. We honor your name, oh God. You're so good to us, Jesus. We bless you and we 